Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Hope you've all seen us in our amazing Sisters-in-Law merch. It's time to order. You can go to politicon.com slash merch, where you can get yourself a Hashtag Sisters-in-Law t-shirt, hoodie, and much, much more. You may have seen, I think all of the sisters have been wearing their uh, uh, Jill Winebanks style Sisters-in-Law pin on television appearances lately. So you too can be just like Jill with your own sisters-in-law pin. Uh, Now today we will be discussing a number of important topics. The request to interview Representative Jim Jordan by the January 6th committee, the verdict against police officer Kim Potter, and the Supreme Court steps out of the shadows in the vaccine mandate cases. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Um, Well, it's Christmas morning. And um, I hope all of you have enjoyed uh, whatever it is are your holiday traditions on Christmas Day. My family uh, opens gifts around the tree. And then we have a big brunch with uh, eggs and cinnamon toast and things like that. How about the rest of you? You guys have any good holiday traditions? Chinese food, of course. (laughs) (laughs) The Jewish girl in the room. We will get takeout this year for Christmas Day. Well, one of two Jewish girls in the room who does (laughs) We're doing dim sum, but this oh, year nice. we're actually we're doing takeout dim sum because we felt that this year was not the time, even though dim sum half the fun is being in the restaurant and picking your choice from a cart and not knowing when you start how much you're going to eat. It's sort of <laughs> like a buffet. But this year we're going to have to decide how many to order so that we don't uh, go into the restaurant. Well, now you have more time to like pace yourself. So in a way, it's a, it's a, it's <laughs> a benefit. Eat all day. <laughs> so uh, I, we normally host um, a Christmas dinner, which we, we will do again. Everybody, all of our uh, family who will come to join us will test beforehand, of course. We have new traditions to add to our old ones. But one tradition that I am adding to my new blended family is my family growing up, we always celebrated on Christmas Eve. We had a, a big party on Christmas Eve. And one of the things that we cooked at the Christmas Eve party is fried chicken. And one of my Christmas memories is on Christmas morning, you know, as you're opening the presents or after you open the presents, cold fried chicken is amazing. Like it's a really good (laughs) snack and that's what we would eat there. So I made fried chicken on Christmas Eve so that we can enjoy it on Christmas morning. Um, And so it's nice to blend tradition together. I make fried chicken Christmas Eve. My husband makes Cornish hen on Christmas uh, evening for uh, dinner. And so it's a nice new tradition. Yeah, that's great. I love I love holiday traditions. That's that's terrific. Well, we have a lot to talk about today, but before we get into it, I wanted to ask you guys about um, an article I read about um, Lake Superior State University, which is in Michigan, has this annual tradition where they gather up all the words from the year and they publish their list of what they thought were the most overused or misused words of the year uh, to retire them. They, they actually call it banishing. Um, so some of the words that they had for 2021 on their year-end list were pivot, unprecedented, uh, and Karen as words that ought to be <laughs> banished or retired. You know, I, I have to support Karen. I find Karen to be both uh, sexist um, and ageist. Um, and as someone who identifies as a, a bit of a Karen herself, um, 
I think uh, that's a good one to retire. You're not a Karen. I, I'm not a Karen, but I do. I, I Karen, the, the verb to Karen, I definitely Karen. I can Karen like a boss. <laughs> but I, I think Karen is not a word. You know, we, we don't have a male equivalent because nobody criticizes sure. men who are assertive. It's only women who are assertive. But anyway, that's their list. And I thought I, want, I wanted to ask you guys if you had any thoughts about words or phrases that you've heard in the past year that have become either, you know, tired or overused or misused, you know, a couple of my pet peeves are nothing burger. That's the worst. It was bad the first time anyone ever said it. That's a total nothing burger. And it, it has been so used and overused that that one, if it should be banished forever. Um, there's another one, you know, it, it kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of vivid visual, but it's one that's just um, so overused and that is pearl clutching. Uh, oh, you know, the Republicans need to stop their pearl clutching over X, you know, sort of the faux outrage. Um, clever, I think, but, you know, after you've heard it for the thousandth time, it's like, come on, you got to come up with a new a new one. Uh, how about you guys? Do you have any thoughts about um, any words or phrases that you think need to be retired? Well, certainly I did a, a survey on Twitter and asked uh, people to tell me what words they thought fit that category. And the number one winner unprecedented. Yeah. No question about it. And which is interesting because in today's uh, discussion, I think we have some unprecedented uh, <laughs> like issues. Like literally unprecedented. And, well, and literally was another one. Um, <laughs> but I meant both of those things in the correct way. <laughs> you, I know. In, in this case, it's true. Banish. Banish. Can't use them anymore. No, I think unprecedented <laughs> can be used when it is appropriate. But I, I got so many interesting answers. It, I couldn't believe it. It was things like, of course, breaking news was another one. Uh, it's used when it isn't breaking news. And they also added to that Fox News because Fox is not news, it's <laughs> entertainment or opinion. But there were some also that fell into my category of something I've tried to develop on Twitter, which is a hashtag for say this, not that. And there were a lot of things like, don't say that it was misleading when it's an out and out blatant lie, call it a lie. Riot, it wasn't a riot, it was an insurrection, it was an attempted coup, call it what it is. So there were, there were a lot, election fraud was another one that people didn't wanna hear ever again because there was no election fraud. And so that was, that was a big winner, stolen election, um, you know, stop the steal, that, was, that fell into that category. CRT, people didn't wanna hear that one anymore because it's used inappropriately almost every time. So that was some of the interesting ones I got in response. And I hope people will keep sending me their, their suggestions for things that should be banished. Yeah, I saw that tweet, Jill, and you got over a thousand responses. Yeah. And I, I enjoyed looking there. So I, I hope our, our listeners will add their contributions to, to your tweet by replying to your tweet. Go ahead, Kim. So in the, in the vein of say this, not that, I think for mine, it's, it's not just this year. It's been for the past few years now. Um, one phrase or set of phrases that I really dislike are, are racially charged, racially tinged. You see this a lot, uh, hear this a lot, read this a lot in media reports and, and also Twitter and other places. And I think what ha happens is for a lot of journalists, when a, a, whatever they're writing about involves race, it's A, it's a shorthand because it's two words. 
And B, it sort of allows a writer when they know race is involved, but they don't really want to get into it or they're uncomfortable with it from really <laughs> dealing with it. They can just say, oh, it's racially charged. and it, it. But no, that doesn't mean anything. Like, what does racially charged mean? Am I... If I put my if I plug my phone into it, will it give my phone power? It's not racially charged. <laughs> like what is that? What is racially tinged? Oh, I mean, good. we might as well say you know sprinkled with racism. You know, finished oh, with a racial reduction sauce, uh, topped with a racial <laughs> foam. Like it, it. If something is racist, say that it is. If something squarely involves race, say that it does and explain how. Just say the thing correctly. And I know there is a tendency to back away from that, but I think the, f- the last several years should have taught us that we need to talk about race and racism clearly, plainly, and directly. And we can't like tiptoe around it. So whenever I hear that phrase, it really bothers me. That's such a good one. And how, how about this one? I don't have a racist bone in my body. The racist bone. racist bone. In my body. Oh, the racist yes. bone, right? We've said right next to the misogynist <laughs> bone or connected to the misogynist <laughs> bone. I, we you know, need that to- is- we need to do some removal of the surgical removal yep. of the racial bone. Yeah, it needs to be <laughs> banished. I, what I the reason that that phrase bothers me so much is because it suggests that it's about you, and it's not about you. It's about the impact on others. Yeah, you know that's this whole idea that as long as I have good intentions, I can't possibly be racist. Um, you know that's what that's what critical race theory is all about. Frankly, you don't have to intend to discriminate against people if there's a systemic effect of it on others. And so that's why this, I don't have a racist bone in my body, strikes me as, by the people who say it, likely untrue, but even if it were true, kind of missing the bigger picture. But um, how about you, Joyce? Do you have any words that need to be banished or retired? Well, I think I'm the contrarian here, although I do agree with everything you say. And Kim, I especially love what you said. I think that those are just words to listen to and and live by in the coming year. Um, it's so easy for people to assume that racism exists and keep on going. And I think this is a great year for us to all actually understand what critical race theory means and do what we can do um, to, to take down structural racism. But, but what I don't like is this notion that we need to cancel the word unprecedented because, and maybe we're going to get a lot of listener email saying Joyce needs to stop this, but I do think we're living in unprecedented times. We are going to, in the next year, learn whether or not the Justice Department is going to prosecute a former president and those around him. Um, I got sort of tired of hearing constitutional crisis during the four <laughs> years of the Trump administration. That's but again, one. it wasn't because we needed to take that word out of our vocabulary. It was because we were constantly living on the edge of a constitutional crisis. And I think what we're tired of isn't these words, it's that damn man who who made them part of our everyday way of living. And and here's to a, a 22, 23, and 24 where he fades away and not the words. Oh, that's... So, Joyce, I, I brought up this this kind of funny thing, and you're so much smarter and bigger than I am. That's brilliant. I just don't have you're a right. sense of humor, honey. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, you know, the last thing that we need is to become numb to all of these things. Like another one that um, on, on the list that Jill got in response to her tw- her tweets was gaslighting, and. Okay. 
although you hear it a lot and it's kind of overused, um, you, you know, it's not one that I would suggest we retire or banish because it is a technique that people use to manipulate um, public opinion. And so it's, it's pretty are, appropriate. Are you kidding? Gaslighting is commonplace in my house. This is how it happened. <laughs> uh, oh, no, Joyce, you said you would cook dinner tonight. No, I absolutely didn't, Bob. You've been sitting here playing video games all day and I've been working. Oh, oh no, you promised you would cook dinner every, every week. So yeah, gaslighting so it, it cannot be retired because Mm-mm. I have a great gaslighting pin. So we need to have well, a gaslighting there, episode. There you have it. It's, uh, we'll, we'll keep it there. Well, please send to Jill any words that you think should be retired or banished, um, because there's certainly some, some good nominees out there. Well, that was a fun discussion, but let's get to something a little more serious. Jim Jordan, the Republican representative from Ohio, who never wears a jacket, has received a letter request from the January 6th committee, not a subpoena, but a request in deference to his being a member of Congress. He is the second member of Congress to be asked to voluntarily provide information and be interviewed. Scott Perry, a Republican from Pennsylvania, was the first. He has refused cooperation. Will Jordan do the same? He was nominated by the Republican House leader McCarthy. By the way, Leader McCarthy was one of the things that people didn't want to see repeated again this year, um, (laughs) to serve on the very committee requesting his cooperation. But he was rejected by Speaker Pelosi because of his comments about January 6th and his communications with then-President Trump before and possibly during January 6th, which might make him a witness who therefore should not be on the investigation committee. And now that's exactly where we are. Will he cooperate in response to the letter? Will a subpoena be needed? Will Congress subpoena one of its own? I have strong feelings on the subject, but let me start by asking some questions. First, let me start with you, Barb. Legally, Jordan's initial reaction to the request was as vague as his answers to the press about when he spoke to former President Trump. He said, well, I just got the letter. I have to decide. Um, And so far, he hasn't changed his mind on that. Is this the best way to get his cooperation through this request? And legally, does he have to reply to the letter request? And would he have to respond if it was a subpoena? Yeah, I think this is not the best way to get his cooperation. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's requesting voluntary cooperation. Come talk with us. And I think the committee is using the typical courtesies that they give to each other, which is not to drag colleagues before a committee for uh, live testimony, Um, I think out of uh, professional courtesy. But man, in this instance, if there is ever an instance where professional courtesy just ought to be thrown out the window, it is when there is the planning for an insurrection in the very body, killing people in that very building. My gosh. So it strikes me as, as... maybe what they perceive to be a necessary step before they issue subpoenas. But I I can almost guarantee you he is not going to cooperate. I mean, that is just not Jim Jordan's uh, brand. Um, You've probably seen him in some of these congressional hearings where he plays, relishes the role of the attack dog. So the idea that he would cooperate strikes me as highly, highly unlikely. But I guess they'll give him a chance. Sometimes that can be helpful later if you have to litigate these things that, you know, we tried, we tried to do it the nice way and he refused. But uh, he does not have any legal obligation to respond to a letter request. If there is a subpoena, now that would be 
<clears throat> unprecedented. Um, but uh, I, he would be legally required to respond to it just like anybody else. And so, you know, then maybe we see him resort to the courts and other things. But I don't think he's got any claim at all of executive privilege as a member of the legislative branch. I don't know. I suppose he could make one up since he was consulting with the president. Um, he could invoke his Fifth Amendment rights against um, compelled self-incrimination, I suppose. Um, but uh, I think ultimately, if they want to compel his testimony, they can do that. And the only thing he could do to stop it is either take the fifth or go to jail to, to avoid testifying. So your use of unprecedented there is absolutely correct. So kudos for that. But it also reminded me that uh, in Watergate, we actually issued a letter request to President Nixon before the subpoena. We, the younger members of the team, wanted to issue a subpoena immediately because we knew that a letter would be ignored and had no impact. But Archie Cox felt that it was the appropriate thing to do. And so a letter request was sent. Of course, it was denied and ignored. And so we immediately issued a subpoena. We did not delay. We did not wait very long. But we did go through that same process. Um, so Joyce, let's move to looking at what have we learned from Bannon and Meadows' contempt referrals and from Flynn's challenge to the committee being thrown out of court, uh, although it was partly due to procedural errors on his part. Does that instruct us at all as to what might happen in terms of a subpoena to, um, in this case? I think it does. I think we're learning a lot about the dynamic with the January 6th committee. They seem to have learned the lessons of the Mueller investigation and of impeachment, where it was difficult to obtain witness testimony, where witnesses either just flat out refused or went to court and, uh, you know, played the whole Trump delay game. So the January 6th committee, which you know, I think we've discussed this, but the committee has hired as staff some some former prosecutors, some of Barb's and my former colleagues, some investigators. These are people who are not used to having their subpoenas ignored. And I think that we're seeing that along with a real development of backbone among members of Congress who, who are on the committee. So they came into this ready for the fight. It wasn't like they were stunned when they were stonewalled by Steve Bannon. I don't think that they've issued a request to Jim Jordan expecting that he's going to voluntarily comply with it. They are simply setting the stage, I, I think as Barb said, to show that they are doing everything right, giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, so that when they get to the final stage in this sad drama, which inevitably is going to be a request to the Justice Department to prosecute Jordan for contempt, they will be able to go to DOJ with um, clean hands. And I think that we've seen some effectiveness with the way the committee has proceeded with Mike Flynn's decision to file a lawsuit instead of just trying to assert executive privilege and, and bluff his way out because he knew that if he did that, the committee in its sort of steadfast, deliberate manner would go ahead and refer him to the Justice Department, that he, like Bannon, was outside of executive privilege, uh, and that the outcome would likely not have been a good one. You know, Jill, as you pointed out, the decision in Flynn's case is more about procedural failure than the substance of the case. But nonetheless, I think the January 6th committee is sending a strong message to all of these people. Testify or face the consequences. Can I just interject how much I admire the way Joyce pronounces privilege? She hits all three syllables. I kind of 
make, <laughs> you know, cram it into two. But privilege, it sounds very melodious. You should hear my daughter say butter. It has like 12 syllables. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, Kim, uh, let's move to some of the substance and political consequences of this. And uh, first of all, what does the committee want from Jordan? Yes. What kind of information? Yeah, so it's really important. Look, uh, Congressman Jordan isn't just one of their colleagues. He was someone who, by his own admission, was in touch with Donald Trump during the critical period that they are investigating. And what, um, like all witnesses, uh, the committee wants to know what Jim Jordan knows, what he said, and what he did before and during the attack on January 6th. And in part, they want to know that because they also want to know exactly what Donald Trump knew, said, and did before and during the attack on January 6th. And Jim Jordan, again, by his own mission, admission, was in touch with Donald Trump. So that in itself makes him a critical, critical witness. And the information that he can give is is very important to the committee's work. I think that sets him apart again from like a Steve Bannon. Yes, although Steve Bannon was in the middle of this, um, he he's likely not going to be very helpful. And I think he serves as a good uh, example of what happens when you completely flout uh, a a subpoena from Congress. So I think that certainly is true. Um, but one one of the things that the committee is asking for, according to uh, Chairman Benny Thompson, is any communications that Jordan had uh, with the folks who were at the Willard Hotel on January 5th, that so-called war room, before this uh, January 6th rally that Donald Trump put on that led up to uh, that uh, coup attempt at the Capitol. They want to know what, if anything, he said to any of those folks there. Um, and also more information, of course, about uh, uh, one of the messages that came uh, from Jim Jordan, um, one of the memos suggesting ways in which Mike Pence could reject the votes of the electors on January 6th to show that perhaps he was part of this plot to, to develop a way to try to circumvent the election. So there is a lot of there there. But this is, again, something that's unprecedented. It's not often <laughs> that a committee uh, seeks as a witness one of their fellow um members of Congress. And so, yeah, there are political implications here as well as legal ones. There are a lot of options open to the committee. Remember, just seeking a criminal contempt referral, is that's what they've done so far, but that's not the only thing they can do. They could, te- they could seek inherent contempt, which would allow the committee to have the sergeant at arms have Congressman Jordan the next time he's in the Capitol, bring him before this committee and force him to testify. Now, that would be that certainly there that would have huge political implications because that would give Donald Trump and his supporters a way to say, see, this was just a politically motivated theater. This has nothing to do with anything with the truth. They're just out to get me and all of my supporters. And that could really backfire uh, politically. They can also seek civil contempt, which would basically be a, a judge ordering uh, Jordan to comply and, and give testimony as opposed to just saying he's guilty of a crime by avoiding it. So it's tough. It, it's there are political consequences to everything that they do because he is a member of Congress and because he is such a staunch supporter of Donald Trump. So um, the committee has to move uh, carefully here, and I'm sure they're considering all of this. And, and let me just add that if a judge orders 
him to testify in a civil contempt proceeding, he can be jailed until he does yes, comply. Absolutely. So jail can be the result, yes. not just of criminal contempt, but also of civil contempt. But in that case, he would hold the key to the jail door right. and could unlock it anytime by... Uh, uh, and I will also point out, this does raise a very direct executive privilege claim, uh, which I think will fail, but because one of the things they have spelled out in the letter is that they want to talk about Jordan's conversations with the president. So anytime you mention conversation with the president, that leads to a question of uh, privilege, which the only person who can invoke that legitimately is President Biden, and he has waived that. So... I would say there's no chance it's going to prevail, but it's just something worth noting. Um, so maybe I'm going to ask all of you how important a witness he is. And if it does get to a subpoena, if you think there'll be political blowback for that. Well, he would be a great witness if he had the capacity to tell the truth about these <laughs> subjects. But he is so deep into Trump world that I just don't think that this is the person who's going to become the John Dean um, for the insurrection. You know, Jim Jordan is one of those figures who every time you flipped on your TV screen for a congressional hearing and had to hear him questioning uh, witnesses, it was just so grating. It wasn't the professional, professional demeanor that you expect to see taking place in the Congress. It wasn't about getting to the, the you know, business of, of doing the work of the people that you represent. It was always about political points and this sort of sorry tit for tat that was just so unseemly. I, I just don't view him as having, you know, witness evidentiary potential. He's nonetheless somebody that you have to go through because he's a key player, a principal player. And this suggests to me that the committee has talked to a lot of people who were around him and around these conversations. They very likely know a lot of what he would say if he had the capacity to tell the truth. They're giving him that opportunity, right? They're giving him that opportunity and let the, let the consequences fall out how they may. But Joyce, you think he's willing to commit perjury for the for the president? I don't think he'll testify. I mean, I I really Mm -hmm. don't. I think at at bottom, he's in such a bad place, right, Kim? Because how horrible would it be for him to have to take the the congressional witness stand Mm -hmm. and take the Fifth Amendment? I mean, that would Mm -hmm. be tantamount to the whole you know, House of Cards crumbling. But I think he'll, you know, file lawsuits and say you can't do this to a congressman and and delay for as long as possible. It's an interesting question. What would he do if he actually got to the point where he was under oath in front of his peers being asked questions? That's just a fascinating pickle for him to be in. And I think with the evidence that the committee already has, the details of conversations and the evidence they will still get eventually, including all of the records from um, the lawsuit involving Trump's uh, documents, that it will be something that they could prove perjury on. Uh, But we have, oh gosh, we have so many more questions. Um, If he does get subpoenaed and doesn't comply how do you think the Department of Justice is going to respond? Maybe I'll direct that to you, Barb and Joyce. Uh, would they treat it like they have Bannon, um, or would they treat it differently because he's a member of Congress? And if so, it's going to make me really mad. I think it would be um, considered differently for a couple of reasons. One is every case rises or falls on its own facts. So I think they will look at the facts of the situation. You know, Bannon is a fairly... 
uh, easy case because he refused to even engage with the committee. He just completely blew them off. He wouldn't show up. And so Jordan is probably savvy enough to at least go through those motions to avoid that. But if not, that could be a factor. But there is special consideration when charging members of Congress with a crime. Um, It has to be discussed with the highest levels of the Justice Department to ensure that it is not being done for a political purpose. So I think, you know, I'm sure Steve Bannon also got that kind of scrutiny. But I do think that they have to be uh, extra cautious to ensure not only that they are not using any kind of political motivation in making this decision, but also avoiding the appearance that it's politically motivated. So I think for that reason, it makes it a little harder. But that being said, um, I think if the facts are right, uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they would charge him with a crime. I, I, I just have to weigh in here because to me, it's he cannot be treated differently than anyone else. I do not think that the speech and debate clause protection applies in any way to this. This is not speech or debate on legislation on the floor of Congress. This is something completely unrelated. And if he is being held above the law, when we know that even the president can't be above the law, and presidents have been subpoenaed, we have a history of that. So it's not unprecedented in that regard, even though there has never been a congressional committee subpoenaing one of its own. But I think I would be very angry if the Department of Justice doesn't pursue, assuming his behavior is contemptuous and that he does things that would justify it. I think a referral would be the way you have to go and they would have to act on it. I think where we're really headed here is a conversation that centers around this notion of the crime fraud exception. Um, that means that even privileged conversations aren't aren't cloaked with privilege. And it's sort of a, a weird problem and maybe a good topic for us to take up in full down the road because there's a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem here. To say that there's a crime fraud exception problem, that, that these conversations aren't privileged because they were discussing crimes, they were discussing insurrection, they were discussing interference with the election, you have to make this sort of value judgment that a crime was being contemplated And that's really the problem that DOJ sits sort of on the horns of in making these considerations. But, you know, I think if Barb was the attorney general and if if I was her deputy attorney general, um, we would do a review of all of the evidence for her. That's really the important thing, right? You have to look at each case on its own merits. What you have to avoid is making a political judgment, and that cuts both ways. That means he doesn't get treated worse because he's a politician from the opposing party. You have to be scrupulously fair in how you consider the situation. He also, though, doesn't get any benefit because he's a member of Congress. And, you know, in this country, we have a proud tradition of indicting members of Congress, like Jack Abramoff, when they commit crimes. They, too, are required to comply with the law. They cannot be above the law. I say all that to say DOJ has a difficult job here. It's not as easy as we would like for it to be or as they would like for it to be. But I have confidence in, in the folks that are, that are there and that they'll navigate this territory carefully and properly. I agree completely with what you said, and I will just add a very brief statement that during Watergate, we faced this exact question of subpoenaing the tapes, and we very carefully picked only nine for the first subpoena 
that we felt we could make the strongest argument were not discussions about politics or policy, but were in furtherance of the obstruction of justice. And so we would pick a tape that was John Dean, and and I'm going to close with just asking who you all think might be the John Dean of this investigation, if there is anybody strong enough to be the John Dean. But we were very careful because we took a conversation where he said, this is what I told the president on this conversation. And we knew that that was criminal. Um, Or we had timing that indicated this is the first conversation he's having with the attorney general after the break-in. And so we know that they're going to be talking about the break-in. And we were able to convince the court that all nine of those fell within probable crimes, and that's how we got them. Uh, So last question, who do you think might be the John Dean of January 6th investigation? Is there anybody? I don't think there is one. This is just so different. Yeah, so far nobody has uh, shown up. Maybe somebody whose name is not a household name. You know, I think that we hear a lot about the big names, but there could be other people, uh, you know, staffers and aides and chiefs of staff who are not household names. You know, maybe it'd be someone like that who comes through and tells the truth. I think that's right. I think that there will be a number of sort of smaller versions of John Dean. It'll be people who look their future squarely in the eye and realize it's it's time to, uh, as prosecutors will often say with defendants, have a come to Jesus meeting. Joyce, I know you've been um, knitting many of your holiday gifts. Have you been using any online shopping and using honey? Well, you know, a girl does have to buy yarn if she's going to knit. (laughs) And I've fallen in love with Honey, who helps me find the best deals on everything that I need and yarn that I don't need because I have enough to last for the rest of my life. But Honey is great. What do you think, Kim? I love Honey. I have been, I was done with my Christmas shopping like weeks ago in part because I didn't have to wait. Yeah, I didn't have to wait for the sales or Black Friday and all of that. I know it was great. I, I've been, well, and, you know, maybe I've con- I continue to shop for myself, but it, you know, in addition, <laughs> that's why Honey is so great. I knew I was going to get the best deals because they would make it easier to find all of those codes that you want to enter at the end of your online experience. What about you, Jill? I have been a longtime user of Honey. I signed up for it ages ago, and it has been consistently wonderful. If there is a possible discount anywhere in the universe, Honey finds it and adds it immediately to your online purchases. You don't have to look individually. You don't have to do a Google search for coupons for whoever the vendor is. Honey does it all for you. And these days, of course, we all shop online. And we can't help feeling it when the promo code box taunts us at checkout. But thanks to Honey... Manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart, getting you the perfect deal. They support over 30,000 stores online with everything from tech to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. And so far, Honey has found its over 17 million members, over two billion. That's $2 billion in savings. It is so easy. I wish I had been using it for ages. So, you know, when you get to your um, the, the checkout uh, section of your favorite sites, 
and you see that coupon code, well, the honey button drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons. And then you wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons it can find for your site. And when it finds one that works, you'll watch prices drop. It's that easy. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. So go on, get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash sisters. That's joinhoney.com slash sisters, or look for the link in our podcast notes. And please don't forget to use the slash sisters so that we get credit for your signing up. All right, up next, we are discussing the verdict in the case of former Brighton Center police officer Kim Potter, who was found guilty of both first and second degree manslaughter on Thursday. Um, I want to start with you guys just to get a sense, and and we can start with you, Joyce. Uh, Were you surprised by this? I mean, especially, A, given I heard a lot of legal commentary after this trial, uh, after both sides uh, closed, that thought uh, a conviction would be difficult in this case. And then we also know that the jury asked a question, including what, um, asked questions, including what happens if they couldn't come to a verdict. So were you surprised by this verdict and why? You know, I was a little bit surprised only because I'm jaded from um, prosecuting cases in a district that had a pretty strong history of prosecuting police officers for excessive force or other kinds of misconduct. And all too often getting a hung jury in a case where we thought the evidence was very clear. So you get jaded over time. But something really interesting happened here, Kim. And unless I misheard the judge, when she was announcing the verdicts, she indicated that they had reached the verdict on on the second charge, manslaughter two, two days earlier than they reached the verdict on the manslaughter one charge. So I suspect that's what was happening. They probably had a pretty easy time getting to a verdict on negligence. And the holdup, the lengthy deliberations were over manslaughter one. That's what provoked the question on what do we do if we can't reach agreement. Uh, so it sounds like at the end of the day, the jury uh, was uh, had a little bit easier of a time getting to guilty than many commentators suspected they would. Yeah. And so that turns on the difference between negligence and recklessness, right? The, the Whether that her drawing a firearm, uh, even if you accept of what she said was true, she thought she was drawing a taser. She said taser, 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 yet drew her firearm and had it in her hand for seven seconds before firing it. Did that rise to the level of recklessness, which is that higher standard? What What do you guys think about the verdict? Were you surprised and, and specifically at those different standards? I've been grading law school exams that slice through that exact issue of the difference between negligent homicide and recklessness for manslaughter and the malice that you need for murder. And, you know, just to explain the difference, negligence means that she should have known better uh, that there was a risk. She should have known there was a risk. And so she should have checked twice to make sure she knew which weapon she had in her hand before she fired it. Um, And it seems like it was pretty easy for the jury to figure that out because they had training officers testify that there's training in this so that officers are aware of this thing. And in fact, she's a training officer herself. Recklessness requires a slightly higher level. That requires that she actually knew of the risk 
and disregarded it anyway when she didn't check twice to make sure she knew what weapon was in her hand. And that's difficult because, you know, you often get a jury instruction along the lines of, we can't read what's in another person's mind. And because we can't read what's in another person's mind, we have to look at all the surrounding facts and circumstances, what they said, what they did, including their training and experience. And so based on her training um, and the fact that she's a training officer, I think that there is very, very strong circumstantial evidence that she did know there was a risk that you would use the wrong weapon, and that's why you need to double check and shoot it. And so, but but it's a harder question, and I think that's that's the difference is whether she should have known there was a risk or whether she actually knew there was a risk. And in light of the testimony and the other evidence we heard in this case, of course she knew that there was a risk of using the wrong weapon and the, the, what could happen if you use a gun um, when you think you're using a taser. So I think it was the right result, uh, as Joyce said. I, I tend to agree that I think jurors are. Um, give extra deference to police officers who have to make decisions under um, challenging circumstances, um, split-second decisions, matters of life and death. But here, where she said, you know, it wasn't that she thought she needed to use uh, lethal force, it's that she was trying to tase him, and she just goofed. Um, and at that level, when you're dealing with those kinds of issues, you're, you're not allowed to goof because you didn't bother to check twice. Jill? I have a slightly different view because... Um, I was actually able to watch the closing arguments with my husband, and he was like, oh, definitely guilty. She's going to be convicted. And I was making arguments saying, well, what about, what about, what about? And I think in the end of the day, you know, as lawyers, as, even as prosecutors, and I've been both a prosecutor and a defense lawyer, um, we see nuances that the jury just doesn't necessarily see and that it was obvious. I thought, I, I changed my mind from a hung jury to that she would get convicted when they asked to handle the weapon. And the, I mean, seeing it, you know there's a big difference. But if you hold it and you feel the weight of one and the size of one versus the other, you know it can't be a mistake. That When you pick up your service weapon, it feels very different than a taser. And the other thing was all the testimony about your dominant arm and where she kept the service weapon. I think the evidence ended up being very compelling. How do you reach across your body with your dominant arm to take the wrong weapon out? That got to me as, well, I think my husband is right, and he was. So I, I, I'm less surprised by the verdict and so she will be sentenced, uh, I believe, in the, either in February or March. In the meantime, uh, the judge ordered her held without bail. So what uh, what aggravating or mitigating factors do you think is going to go into this sentencing? And how will the fact that the judge recommended that she not be released, her attorney asked that she be uh, released on bail, the judge said no. She faces um, roughly seven years for the first degree charge and four years for the second degree charge under the state's sentencing guidelines. What do you think will happen there, Joyce? So there was an interesting conversation after the verdict came in back and forth between the lawyers with the judge talking about Blakely factors. And it suggests that there will be some sort of consideration and effort by the prosecution to enhance the sentence to, to go higher within that guideline range towards, I think there's a 15-year max on the manslaughter so, one. Yes. I might be on off the first, on the number. On the first degree, mm -hmm. yes. But as you point out, the guideline sentence is sort of a seven to nine year range. I think we'll hear an argument from the prosecution. We'll say, 
This is a police officer, a law enforcement officer, who did nothing to help this man after she shot him. Mm. Instead, she collapsed and said, oh my God, I'm going to go to prison, me, 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 without making any effort to render care. She, you know, she had no way of knowing that she couldn't have saved his life. Her first thought should have been to help him, and it wasn't. And so I think we'll see some sort of uh, an abusive officer or something along those lines to enhance the sentence. What do you think, Jill? I agree with Joyce, um, and it'll be very interesting to see what factors they rely on. But clearly this collapsing, and it was not just her saying, oh, me, 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 but it was getting the attention of the other police officers there to render her aid instead of helping someone who might have lived had aid been rendered immediately. That, to me, is a um, exaggerating an, a, a circumstance that will increase the the sentence. What do you think, Barb? Yeah, I, I, I agree with both of those things, that I think those are aggravating factors. You know, sentencing guidelines are very mechanical in their application. Uh, you get two points for this, minus one point for that. I think that she will get credit for her career as a law enforcement officer and for serving the public in, in some way, if not, you know, a, a, a numerical credit that somehow implicitly in the judge's decision, there will be some mitigation for that. But I think those facts, you know, the recording um, captures her in real time. What she said, there was also uh, injury to uh members of the public and fellow officers because she failed to uh, alert people on the scene about exactly what had happened. So I think those will come into play as well. I don't think she'll get 15 years, but I think she could get a little more than um, the seven to nine years that we've been talking about. Another factor is that she was a training officer who could have said, don't make this stop, and probably should have said, don't make this stop, and didn't. And although there was no racial animus expressed or proved in court, I think there may be some um, some lingering doubt about whether this was a racially motivated stop. Yeah, and you know, on that point, um, for me, what I'm hoping that the result of this verdict, as well as the Derek Chauvin verdict um, in Minnesota and beyond, what what I hope the impact could be is on reform. I mean, we've seen uh, at the state and federal legislative uh, level, police reform just go unaddressed um, in, in a way that's really shocking after the last two years that we've had and the protests that we've seen um, over Black Lives Matter. Um that the inaction has just really been shocking and disappointing. So one thing that I am hoping, aside from the fact that this shows some transparency and accountability to the public, which is really important, um, it's important for police departments, it's important for communities, that perhaps police departments now will see, okay, you know, when there are problems with our policies, when there are problems with our training, when things like this happen, it's not just a matter of, you know, as long as we fight it and, and sort of hold that blue, blue line of resistance, um, it's okay and we can get through it and we don't have to change. People will go to jail. Police officers could go to jail. They, they will probably um, be civil cases that will come for this. I mean, we still have qualified immunity that will may be an um, impediment to some of these um, civil trials. But 
at least now police departments, I hope, will say, okay, you know what, we really need to find better training, um, use better training methods in, to ensure that no one accidentally mistakes a taser for a gun. We need to maybe change the way we do de-escalation. We need to change our policy when we decide whether or not we approach a car based on something like a hanging air freshener that technically is illegal. Maybe we should change the way that we do those stops. Maybe if there is an active warrant for someone, we prioritize finding them at their home and not stopping them in a vehicle. There are so many things that they can do if the even if the motivation is just to keep their officers from going to jail. I will take that if it results in fewer people dying um, the way that Dante Wright did. So do you guys think this proves provides an opportunity for police departments to reform themselves, even if the laws don't change to force them to do it. I think it does, Kim. And I, I think that some departments are already having some of these conversations, but when you have a moment like this, I think it catches everybody's attention in a way that sometimes uh, voices are not heard uh, when they have ideas. When you see something like this and show how it can really bring um, some very severe consequences for failure to change policies, I think suddenly people start paying attention. And so one of the things you mentioned that I think is very worthwhile is for police departments to review their policies about when you can pull someone over. Um, you know, certainly if there's somebody who is posing a danger to a community, I think all of us would want police officers to pull them over, whether it's because they have uh, a warrant for a serious crime or they're operating their vehicle in a manner that is very dangerous to the public. But for things, as you say, like an air freshener or a, a broken taillight or expired tags, those kinds of things, um, those are things that can be handled with a citation. You know, you, you write down the person's license plate number and you send them a, a letter and you say, you know, you're out of compliance, please comply with this within the next you know, 10 days or whatever it is, um, or you will get a ticket for, for doing this. And I think if your goal is public safety, that is a much better way of obtaining public safety than having these confrontations that pose, number one, risk to motorists, but number two, and maybe, maybe even more importantly, risks to police officers. You know, they say, I don't know who it is I'm pulling over when I stop that car. It's a, it's a very dangerous encounter. And so rather than um, having all of these dangerous encounters, it seems like we could eliminate a lot of them. Now, I think the pushback to that would be, and I've heard this before from police officers, yeah, but you'd be surprised at what we find. So often we just do a routine traffic stop. And before you know it, we found dope or guns or something like that. Um, but is that, you know, the way we want to conduct searches in our society uh, when, you know, we care about not only public safety, but also about individual liberty. You know, I don't think any of us would want to be pulled over for a minor, uh, it's not even a traffic infraction, uh, a minor uh, compliance infraction that leads to a full search of our vehicles. And so um, I, I think that that's a, a policy choice that we need to consider um, and, and maybe need to draw in a different place than we have in the past. So I just have to say that y'all are spectacularly more optimistic than I am because I think police departments that are already on a trajectory towards criminal justice reform will do what you all are suggesting. I think it's the departments where there are the worst problems that will just remain intransigent and, and dug in. And so I feel compelled to say yet again, I, I wrote about this, I think my piece is in the show notes a couple weeks back after the Ahmad Arbery verdict came in. We are long past due to pass the George Floyd Act. If we cannot make that 
bare minimum level of progress in, in requiring, not prevailing upon the, the good auspices of police departments that are inclined to do so, but requiring a minimum standard of constitutional policing in this country, then this problem continues to be unaddressed and predominantly black men are at great risk in any encounter with police. It's the holiday season, and and even with the pandemic, Bob and I have been getting out a little bit. Um, We've been to some neighborhood parties where everyone's vaccinated, boosted, and tests before they go. And I had a wonderful red wine last night. I need to track my neighbor down and find out where she got it. Where do y'all get your wines from, Kim? Yes, you know, I've been really enjoying Cameron Hughes wines. And one tradition for Christmas is that my husband makes Cornish hens uh, for Christmas dinner. And the Cameron Hughes Lodi Zinfandel pairs so nicely with it. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having that uh, with our dinner this year. And it's certainly a great bottle to bring if you're going to a celebration. Like you, I love bringing wine as a gift whenever I go somewhere. And even now, while I'm not going very many places except to, you know, small gatherings at friends who are fully vaccinated and boosted, um, it's still a great gift. And Cameron Hughes is terrific. I recently gave a bottle of their Napa Valley White Meritage, which they describe as being a rare, elegant Bordeaux-style white wine. And the important thing about it is it's produced with classic French wine technique at a top Napa Valley estate, and it's priced at only $16 a bottle, which is less than half of what you would pay for that in its original branding name or in a tasting room. Yeah. And Cameron Hughes sources top-rated luxury wines directly from the best wineries around the world. Cameron Hughes Wine is your personal sommelier, insider, and wine buyer, all delivered directly to your door. You get the best wines at affordable prices. Exclusive wineries overproduce and keep official quantities low to keep their prices high. Well, Cameron Hughes gets these wines and sells them under the Cameron Hughes label for a fraction of the price. These wines are an amazing value. And today you can get top-rated, award-winning wines at incredible savings. They sell out fast, so drink the best wine and save. I love how they save us money on really good quality wine. So go to chwine.com today to get 20% off the already great prices and you get free shipping too when you buy three or more bottles. Just enter our code SISTERS at checkout. That's chwine.com with the code SISTERS for 20% off three bottles or more plus free shipping. Great wine, Great prices delivered right to your door in the safety of your own home. And the link is also in our show notes. So the shadow docket is a term used for the docket the Supreme Court uses to decide emergency orders and summary decisions without oral argument. That term was coined in 2015 by University of Chicago law professor William Boddy. The shadow docket is a break from ordinary procedure, or at least it used to be. Its use has become much more frequent. But it's not as suspicious as the name makes it sound. It's frequently used as a process for emergency motions like last-minute death penalty appeals. 
There are those sustained concerns about how opaque the shadow docket can be and whether it leaves the lower courts without sufficient guidance on what the law is after the Supreme Court makes a ruling. So that takes us to this unusual announcement yesterday by the Supreme Court involving federal vaccine requirements. The court will hear oral argument on January 7. Kim, can you help us sort it out? What are the issues here? Is this part of the shadow docket or something else? Unpack all the legalese for us, please. Yeah, so it's really interesting. In fact, um, dare I say that it's unprecedented. No, drink. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, the Supreme Court set a January 7th argument to hear uh, a challenge to uh, federal vaccine mandates or actually two federal vaccine mandates. And it's unusual. It's really unusual for another for a number of reasons. One, it's on a Friday. I mean, anybody who's paid attention to the U.S. Supreme Court knows there are usually two argument weeks per month in the months that they hold arguments. And they're usually Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or if Monday's a holiday, it'll just be Tuesday, Wednesday, and that's it. They added this on a Friday. I don't, I've covered the Supreme Court for 15 years and I've never seen a Friday argument. So that alone um, was uh, interesting. It's also an argument on an application for a stay. And that gets to Joyce's point about the shadow docu- docket. Normally, the way things work is someone asks the Supreme Court to take up a case and what they do, uh, that is called a writ of certiorari, that request to take up a case. And the court will grant a writ of certiorari. And what happens in the ensuing months is people submit briefs, um, amicus friends of the court, people outside who are not parties to the case, but who have an interest in it, they will submit briefs. Supreme Court will schedule an argument. It takes months and months and sometime before the, the term wraps up in June, they'll issue an opinion. In this case, for the third time this term alone, the Supreme Court has scheduled argument in what is normally a shadow docket case. It's a procedural element of the case. They schedule the arguments in a matter of weeks, a very, very short time schedule. And it is expected that they will issue an opinion very quickly as well. Um, For example, in that Texas abortion case, that opinion came in a matter of weeks instead of a matter of months. Usually big controversial cases like that don't come out till the end of the term. So all of this is very different. And it's because, I believe, of all the increased attention we as well as other folks, have been given to the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court had been using the shadow docket increasingly to issue rulings that have a broad impact on a lot of people, whether it was challenges to local mandates about uh, social distancing that was made by church groups, for example, who said they wanted to be exempt from it. And in the process, the court was really expanding their religious rights jurisprudence, but they were doing it in a way that didn't have arguments. There was no transcript. There was no appeal. There was no way we know who voted for what, just in a really um, opaque way that was not good for public trust in the institution. I think they heard that. And I think now that's why we're hearing arguments in these two cases. So there are two cases. One involves the, the employer mandate, any employer over 100 people. Um, are mandated by this Biden order that was issued through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that they either have to require vaccinations or regular testing. Another one was issued by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid that applies to healthcare employees that they either have to be vaccinated or tested regularly. They were challenged by business groups and GOP-led states. So this is a procedural issue, right? It decides whether this 
it can go into effect essentially or stay and stay into effect. So even though it's procedural, this is the bag, like this is the game. Either it's approved by the U.S. Supreme Court and Biden can do it or they don't. And I think that's another reason why they're having arguments in it, making it more transparent so they don't issue an opinion like this in a late night order where nobody knows it's coming and nobody knows exactly why they reached the decision that they did. Thank you for that, Kim. That makes that so much clearer. It's a fascinating case for so many reasons, including the procedural ones you identify. I am very intrigued that the court did not shut down the mandate while it hears the case. In other words, that mandate continues in effect. OSHA is beginning to take baby steps towards enforcement. For CMS, you can really get the rational reason, right? If you're the federal government, maybe you should be able to say that medical workers who are administering your programs have to be vaccinated. Maybe you could even otherwise have liability if you didn't do that. And of course, OSHA, I think, was the big surprise here when when Biden went forward uh, using the OSHA authorization. Nobody really thought, hmm, workplace safety rules. But I remember when we discussed it on the podcast, Barb had this great argument, you know, where she said, well, you can have to wear a hard hat on a construction site, so why not a vaccine in the middle of a pandemic? It's going to be fascinating to watch how this piece of the vaccine mandate goes forward. But Jill, this is not the first vaccine mandate case that the court has heard. Can you talk with us a little bit about where the court has already been on this issue and talk with us about how the court has tended to rule when people are trying to challenge mandatory vaccination? Sure. And there's two parts to my answer. One goes back to 1905 when there was a Supreme Court case about a Massachusetts state uh, mandate for the smallpox vaccine. And the court ruled that that was perfectly legitimate, that there was no violation of anyone's 14th Amendment rights by the state imposing a mandatory vaccine, and that it was a proper use of the state's police powers to protect its citizens from the rampant spread of an pandemic. Uh, So that starts the jurisprudence, I would say, back in the early 1900s, but they have ruled on some state mandates and have basically said states can do it. So the case that the cases that Kim is describing, um, OSHA and Medicaid, Medicare, um, are a very different question. That is the question of how much power the executive branch has that has been given by Congress. Can the federal government impose these kind of mandates? And I think that you, Joyce, in your response have made a very clear and compelling case, I think, you know, or going back to Barbara's original comment, if you can be mandated to wear safety goggles or a hard hat on the workplace, why can't you be required to have uh, a mask on and a vaccine to protect other workers from dangerous situation? And in light of Omicron, that seems even more logical. And the same is true about the uh, mandate, particularly think about nursing homes. And if medical personnel don't have to be vaccinated, they can spread to a very vulnerable population the virus because they're not vaccinated. And so it seems to me that it's a a very good 
time and case for the Supreme Court to look at the federal power to do this. But there is no inherent federal power except what's, you know, set forth in the Constitution. And that's a little vague on their power. And they, the federal government has no power that isn't uh, assigned to it in the Constitution. You know, Barb, I'm interested in your take on this. Jill lays out where the Supreme Court has been um, and makes, I think, a really compelling argument for why you might want to have the federal government involved. But is it that easy? We have a constitutional form of government where we tend to reserve powers to, to the states unless there's an express grant of authority to the federal government. Do you think these federal mandates will stand up to scrutiny by the Supreme Court? Well, um, you draw an important distinction because we have seen this Supreme Court uphold all of these state-based mandates, but it's a very different animal when we're looking at the federal government. Um, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals issued an opinion, uh, you know, written by conservative judges, saying that both OSHA, which is the one that has issued the workplace mandate, um, and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is the one that has issued the health care mandates, that each of them have statutory authority that has been you know, delegated to the executive branch to issue rules uh, that are necessary to protect those workforces. And so it seems very logical to me that they have that authority and that they've done that and that the court should you know, stay out of it and, and let it play out. But of course, the court isn't looking at what is good or bad policy. It is deciding uh, whether these two agencies have this authority. And one thing I think that is um, swirling around all of this is um, there has been a movement by the Federalist Society for the past couple of decades against what they refer to as the administrative state, saying that the executive branch has become too big, that there are all of these, you know, some people call it the deep state, but um, bureaucrats who make up all these rules, too many rules that apply to all of us, and that sometimes these rules exceed their statutory authority. And so, you know, they're not really saying whether it's good or bad policy. They may say vaccines are, are good policy, but they're focused on this idea of whether these administrative agencies have this authority to do it. So although, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a very strong uh, case in favor of keeping it. I do worry that some of those who do have this uh, worldview that the administrative state has grown out of control uh, and needs to be reined in, that on that procedural uh, basis could find it important to strike this down. Um, but I'm glad it's getting a full airing. I'm glad that this is going to be in the open and not in the shadows. As Kim has said, really important. And a number of people have been calling out the Supreme Court on its continued use of the so-called shadow docket. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure we had a huge part to play in that, Kim. I, I noticed that you included us in taking credit there. And I'm sure it was. I think probably Justice Gorsuch probably listens to us a lot. I bet you probably, he does. Yeah. And probably thought, dang, I got to. We gotta have an open hear hearing on this, or otherwise, we gotta do better. Kim Atkins store and Joyce fans are gonna be on me.
You know, you guys, there are some things I like to do at the end of the year. I I think about my uh, charitable contributions and make sure that I've given to the, the charities that I care about. I make sure all my tax documents are in order. And I also make sure that I have the insurance that I need for my needs. And, and on that, Joyce, what do you use to make sure that you can find the policies that might be best for you and your family? You know, it's really hard to navigate all the options out there. And also your family circumstances change. We've had kids get older. You know, we've we've um, got some new things that need insuring. Policy Genius is a really great option if you want to be up to date and make sure you're getting the best deal. Uh, I concur. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from top insurers all in one place. And getting started is easy. Just head to policygenius.com, answer a few questions, and in minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. They have licensed experts ready to help you navigate the shopping and buying process with service that has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies, and you can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. They won't add on extra fees or sell your information to third parties. They've helped over 30 million people shop for insurance since 2014. You could be next. So head on over to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com or look for the link in our show notes. Well, you know, our favorite part of the show is always answering listener questions. We get a lot of great questions, and we uh, we have to choose which we're going to ask, but we hope you'll uh, send your questions to us. You can email them to us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye out on our Twitter feeds throughout the week, where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes from Kelvin. Regarding the discovery phase of lawsuits filed against states enacting voter suppression laws, for instance, if the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Mark Elias are suing Georgia, can they get access to emails, text messages, calls, and documents of Florida, Arizona, and Ohio state officials to establish conspiracy or coordination? I think the answer here is maybe. The way the question is asked, it it ranges a little bit wider than you'd expect because What you can do if you're, say, the LDF and you sue the state of Georgia and you're probably not going to, you know, you're going to, there's this whole question of who's the proper defendant in the case. You can only get discovery that's in their possession. So you can't, for instance, from the Georgia entities get material about Arizona. But if, for instance, you're developing a wider ranging conspiracy theory, you might be able to take depositions from other people. It really depends on the specific allegations in your case and whether or not people you seek discovery from are really aggressive about keeping you from getting it. Sometimes someone whose deposition you notice will sit for it. In the case that's suggested by this question, I suspect that there would be vehement opposition to anything that went very strictly beyond the confines of what Georgia was doing. Yeah, I agree with everything that Joyce said. I I think the answer is maybe, and it depends a lot on the judge, because um, in 
Um, while it is absolutely true in litigation, there is discovery and it can produce a wide range of information. That's only A, if people um, comply with discovery requests and submit them. And if they go challenged, if a judge does or doesn't say, look, let's limit this, let's limit the scope of this discovery, let's get to the documents that you really need. And it doesn't always end up producing quite as much um, of that wide ranging information. Uh, and certainly if the plaintiffs want to move uh, expeditiously, they'd be willing to to go along with the limited discovery to move forward if they think they can still make their case. So we'll have to see. I would add to that, that if this is really to prove a conspiracy or some coordination, it would mean that the state being sued, Georgia in this hypothetical, had received those emails. So they would be in the possession of the officials in Georgia. And so therefore, they might be able to get them under that theory. Yeah, I mean, we should say that there's a distinction between criminal and civil conspiracies. I think the question contemplates some kind of a civil Ku Klux Klan Act type conspiracy, which is very different from a criminal conspiracy charge. Yeah. All right. Our next question comes from Carrie. Carrie writes, I know many of you have made significant career changes. Why did you decide to make a career change? How did you go about deciding what your next move would be? What did you learn from the process and what, if anything, would you do differently? Kim, how about you? Yeah, so I, um, yes, I did make a major career change. Um, You know, I I don't know what I would do differently because I'm really happy where I am now. I think that um, I made the right decision. I started out as a civil litigator, as I've mentioned, um, working straight out of law school, my own caseload, going to court, arguing cases, doing the very thing that I thought I wanted to do. And I realized that I wasn't um, fulfilled in doing it and that I couldn't imagine spending the next 20, 30 years of, of my life doing that. And that I missed journalism. I was a pre-law journalism major in college. I wrote for my school paper and really enjoyed that and contemplated, oh, you know, maybe um, I will go into journalism instead. I wasn't sure. I was moving to New York at the time and I both took the New York bar and applied to Columbia uh, Graduate School of Journalism, got my Columbia acceptance before I got a word that I had passed in New York bar uh, and just took that as a sign that I should go ahead and go um, (laughs) into that program. And I'm very glad that I did. Um, But yeah, I think it's just a matter of listening to, you know, you, you need your vocation is something you spend a great deal of time on and it needs to make you happy and fulfill you. I think part of my problem too, is I like, I work better when I have like four or five jobs. And at that time I only had one. And now I have a a nice, comfortable, roughly five jobs. And so I'm much happier. (laughs) Jill, how about you? You've had a number of different jobs. I have. I have. It's not just a number of different jobs, but it is different careers. In terms of jobs, I mean, within law, I started as a prosecutor, but moved to become um, in private practice, then becoming general counsel of the Army, then back to private practice, then becoming the deputy attorney general of the state of Illinois and the solicitor general of Illinois, Um, and then as the chief operating officer of the American Bar Association. But it was in that position that I went, I really like running a business. I like managing people. I like making sure that we have the proceeds to do the pro bono work that the ABA does so very well and decided that I wanted to become a corporate business executive. It took me a year of actual really looking for a position in that, um, to convince someone that my experience as a lawyer 
qualified me to be a corporate executive. And I loved my job in corporate. Um, it was I worked first for Motorola and then for Maytag and did international business development and loved every single minute of it and knew that it was the right choice for me that I had correctly identified things that I really liked about my jobs in the past, which all involved some management. I mean, General Counsel of the Army manages a lot of lawyers. It's the largest law firm in the world when you consider the Judge Advocate General Corps and all the other lawyers, the Corps of Engineers and the DARCOM procurement lawyers. Um, so it was the right move for me. And then um, I ended up returning to what has always been my love, which is public service, as the head of career education, career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools. And then I finally retired and wrote an op-ed, and that op-ed led to my ending up being an MSNBC legal analyst, which means that I finally returned to my college degree, which was journalism. And I've made those decisions based on sometimes just the pure luck of availability, but also on analyzing what are the things I have enjoyed in each job, and what are the things I haven't liked, and where could I maximize the good and minimize the bad. And they've all worked out to be absolutely terrific. And they all required some risk-taking. You know, changing careers is, is tricky. But it's worth it when you get into something that you really love. And I have loved each of my jobs and each of my careers. That's great. How about you, Joyce? Well, I had a sudden career change when I left the Justice Department <laughs> after more than 25 years. Um, the night before Donald Trump was inaugurated, I... I made a decision that I would resign before he became the president. And I had this really rosy vision of what I was going to do. I actually thought that I would take a little bit of time off, get caught up on Netflix, um, do some gardening. <laughs> and it didn't really work out that way, actually. Barb, one of our former colleagues, Tom Perez, who had uh, run the Civil Rights Division when you and I were there, called me early in the morning um, on that first Monday after I resigned and said he had something he wanted me to get to work on. And I was like, no, it's, you know, it was six in the morning. Um, but Tom is a very difficult person to resist. And so I, I worked on a little project with him and then just kept going. And I thought that I was headed to a job sort of like what Jill has done. I was talking very seriously with a company about um, taking on a general counsel role and with a couple of law firms. They were all fabulous opportunities. I would have been incredibly fortunate to have any one of them. But the, the opportunity to teach sort of dropped into my lap. And it felt so right. I immediately knew I wanted to continue working with, with young lawyers and helping them figure out what they wanted to do with their careers, because I'd been the beneficiary of so many people who had helped steer my career the right way. Having the chance to do the work that we've done being legal analysts, um, both on television and, and here with the podcasts, is, is just really icing on the cake, helping other people in our country come to love and understand the legal system the same way we do and sort of carry forward that commitment to public service a little bit as though we'd never left the Justice Department. Joyce, I know people often confuse the two of us, and it's All becoming the clear time, to me why right? we're... Are we the same person? Because that's exactly my journey. Um, How many so children say, do you have, you know, Barb? Uh, four. Four here. Yeah. 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 I, don't, I don't knit and I don't raise chickens. So but that's you how you could can tell knit us apart. And, and I think you would like chickens if you had some. Mm, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have.
Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy some of our fun swag. This week's sponsors are Honey, Cameron Hughes Wine, and Policy Genius. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag sistersinlaw. So y'all, I have to tell you that last night we had our neighborhood Christmas party. I mentioned before everybody's vaccinated, boosted, and we tested. And so I was talking to one of my neighbors just a couple houses up, and she was telling me how much she likes the podcast, but she said she was getting a little bit worried about herself because she's starting to feel like she's having conversations with us. And she and I obviously (laughs) talk all the time, but she was like, yeah, you know, I just, I feel like I'm talking to Kim and Barb and Jill. So I reassured her that that was what we wanted. And I said, you know, when COVID is over and we can take the podcast on the road, I'll yeah. convince everybody to come to Birmingham and we'll get together with our oh, neighborhood and, and do dinner. Birmingham. Oh, that would be so much For fun. For sure. In uh, that case, Merry Christmas, y'all. Thank you all. Merry yeah. Christmas, everybody. Have a wonderful holiday. We'll see you next week.